0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: The saying that I'm sure most people that listen to this are, are familiar with, and certainly you're probably familiar with, the Chinese character for disaster is the same as opportunity, right? Um, it just kind of depends on how you look at this. Certainly, there's an opportunity to make healthcare better for people and really to drive a lot of things to optimization, which is, you know, all of us are for. We don't want to be replaced, certainly. But getting back to this idea of the democratization of this, these are things now that are within our grasp as physicians where we can drive this. Where, you know, before you needed a tech guy to kind of do a lot of this stuff, now a lot of the tech is also AI. So that ends up being just incredibly powerful, right?
0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Backtable Urology Podcast, your source for all things urology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and backtable.com. This is Jose Silva, your host this week. Uh, we have Dr. Sami Patel. He did residency in Mount Sinai, New York, then andrology infertility fellowship at the University of Illinois in Chicago. He is the medical director of, of Christ International, the largest sperm bank in the world. And he's a urologist at Southeast Male Infertility and Urology in Central Florida. Samir, welcome back to Backtable.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So last time that you were here, uh, you, you were in my group, part of this big uh, health institution. And we talk about you at some point, maybe venturing off just because you wanted to practice andrology and fertility and just dedicate that. So how's it been?
1: Yeah, it's been illuminating since I left it's nascent. So there, there are certainly things that I'm happy about and things that I need to be more patient with. I think that anytime any new venture happens, that that's kind of the name of the game. But I certainly see the potential in, in what I'm doing. And uh, it's been well received by the community, which is really the most important thing. So it, it's good. It's good right now. It's certainly different in the sense that, As you know, when we're in our group, it's just a treadmill that just goes faster and faster. It becomes very, very difficult to breathe during the day. It's so busy, which is good. I mean, that's kind of, I think by nature, us as urologists, it's just kind of how we're built. So I miss that to some extent. I never thought I would miss that. But having said that, it is definitely still busy, but in different ways. Yeah,
0: so, so you mentioned last time you, you were busy, but not maybe andrology fertility wise And that was one of the things that you wanted just to try to continue growing that sector, which, as you mentioned, uh, is, is a sector in need. At least here in Central Florida, there's not, not much, and even in, in Florida in general, uh, there's not much places dedicated fully to andrology infertility. Where is it right now? What's the state of infertility in the U.S.?
1: Well, there's some interesting trends. Certainly, the rate of infertility is going up, and that has not been a mere blip in the road. As we've started to gather more and more data, it is definitely increasing. Before, we used to think that that was maybe a result of just the way we tested semen analyses or the way we kind of do things now versus before, and there probably is still a little bit of some degree of that. However, certainly looking at macro trends and epidemiologic data, there is certainly an increase, a rise in infertility on both sides, male and female. Uh, as a population, we are certainly growing more infertile, the rate of which is low. It's not that you know we're all of a sudden headed to a population cliff. But when you start seeing countries that are headed towards a population cliff, are in the midst of their population cliff, certainly the data becomes much more transparent and much more obvious. So there's
0: countries, I mean, I'll use some examples like, like Canada and, and places in Europe that out of people are moving, the young guys, the fertile guys are moving to other regions. So it's not only those, just that, it's just that the people are stay, that are staying are also infertile.
1: Well, that's right. So it ends up being, some of it is kind of what you're getting at. It's age of reproduction. Uh, Some of that, of course, is a modern artifice. We, as a population, we reproduce later in life than we used to. And that, that number increases. Certainly, there's a biphasic component of that. But certainly among professional populations, it becomes more and more apparent. But there's a couple of interesting trends nationwide and worldwide that are occurring. Uh, The first, it's really interesting to look at this stuff through an anthropomorphic lens. So there's certainly a growing population that either does not want kids or certainly does not want kids early. And the does not want kids early, we kind of think of that as good because that means that they may be more focused on becoming self-sustained and being you know, financially independent to be able to have kids. But a significant amount of that population now also does not want kids or maybe decides to have kids later on in life. So part of it is that exactly like you're saying, kind of young people that aren't as young, but still young enough to have kids wanting kids. Part of it is also a different dynamic. Some of that is because of obesity. So you know as the rate of obesity increases, our infertile rates are going up. And part of it is the the specter that we all kind of first think of when we think of infertility, but it's not necessarily the be-all end all, but it's certainly a contributing factor and that is environmental cues. Uh, as we start to get more and more data about different endocrine disruptors in our environment, uh, that has become a bigger and bigger issue and certainly one that is playing a role in terms of uh, fertility issues. So you know, you kind of have a lot of these things going on simultaneously, which you've kind of highlighted a little bit in some of the Scandinavian countries where that becomes an older population and Traditionally, with those sort of populations, kind of the driver for fertility ends up being immigration, ends up being uh, a lot of uh, immigration that ends up being younger, uh, hungrier populations that do end up either bringing kids or reproducing at a younger age. And that sustains populations. And now, you know, because of geopolitics, some of it is because of endogenously in certain areas where there isn't as much necessity for migration because a lot of, you know, some third world countries are starting to become much more economically viable. So that then kind of leads to a less attractive calculus to move and be an immigrant. That ends up kind of changing a little bit of the dynamic as well. So, you know, it's kind of a a bunch of different factors and certainly interesting, again, when you look at it from an anthropomorphic point of view, when you look at population densities and population capacities for different populations, how much of this is really kind of a pushback to what limits really are in certain places. It's an interesting conversation.
0: And Samit, when you mention infertility, um, are we talking about something specific in the parameter, like low semen, low sperm count? low motility, is there something specific that it continues to grow or it's just in general?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, certainly I was talking in general, but when you start drilling down into the specifics, that ends up being part of it. Again, we used to think before, at least there are still some people that think that, well, if you kind of do a semen analysis with the parameters they used to do 30, 40 years ago, they haven't really changed that much. And there probably is some degree of truth to that. We just are a lot more specific, and we're able we're able to take a higher sample population, and we're also a little bit better in terms of getting a, a bigger sample size, and you know, just being able to accumulate or to evaluate bigger sets of data. But also, when you start looking at that data. There seems to be, at least within the male space, there, there is a trend towards a decrease in total modal counts. In terms of the morphology itself, that's a little bit harder to judge because we have become a little bit more precise in terms of judging morphology. And it's a little bit less clear uh, than it was before exactly what morphology means in a lot of people. A lot of times you'll have an abnormal morphology, you'll have a person with an abnormal morphology that's had three or four kids. And so, you know, it becomes difficult to kind of determine if that becomes really clinically significant. So th- there, there's a lot of, you know, degree of difficulty in assessing that. But certainly when you kind of look at it as a whole in this oligo uh basket, that population's increasing. Part of it may be just access, but part of it also seems to be true general trends that are occurring. And how about ho- hypogonadism? Is it also increasing as well? Right. Hand in hand. Part of that is because the concentration of testosterone within the testes is about 40 to 100 times that in blood, right? So testes do two things. Essentially, they do more, but essentially two things produce testosterone and produce sperm. And both of those seem to be some degree of level of testicular function. And yeah, the testosterone levels are going down. It becomes a little bit hard again to tease out the reason for that. Some of that is probably those things that I mentioned before. Some of that is also more specifically, and again, related to the fertility conversation, uh, just uh, an artifice of modern society. So what happens with our digital age is that it's funny. One of my favorite evaluations or, or just kind of lookbacks is if you've ever looked at the sociology literature from the 60s specifically, it's fascinating This was the age, remember, of automation. So this is when you had automated washer dryers that started to come out and temperature control. And, you know, we started having things like refrigerators and, you know, different ways to cook things faster. And so sociologic literature during that time, they basically stated that there was going to be this general problem That can lead to all sorts of social unrest and societal unrest because people would have too much time on their hands. Because of all this time that they save with all this automation, they're just going to have too much time. They're not going to know what to do with it. And, you know, of course, the exact opposite happened where, you know, that that only bred more time to do more things and you just end up, you know, running faster on, on the wheel. So it's fascinating to look at that and see how directly often, you know, this is probably to some degree a learning lesson into a lot of the people that try to predict these trends. Sometimes you just don't know where things are headed. And so I take that as a kind of a long-winded example to say that, you know, our modern age that we now have that, again, it's kind of hard for me or anybody to really predict how this is going to end up. but. What has happened is certainly the everywhere all the time, you know, in the Internet age where you have IOT and, you know, the Internet is not only ubiquitous, it's expected. You know, you're expected to have almost instant access to everything anywhere. A lot of things happen as a result of that, one of which is a very simple thing that people sleep less people sleep less because it's easier to stay up and you have things to do, or there's more entertainment and you don't want to go to sleep as you're entertained. And I see it certainly in my practice a lot where that decrease in sleep, there's a direct correlation between that and lower testosterone levels. You really need that stage three, stage four sleep to actually increase testosterone levels. So it's more than just simply kind of you know, environmental cues or even the obesity, although those things are, are are linked very strongly. And the hypogonad male certainly has an increased risk of obesity and decreased sleep can lead to both of those things, or certainly be a contributing factor to both those things. Again, it's kind of an interesting dynamic when you kind of try to tease out the the cause of all these things, but both things are happening.
0: You mentioned sleep, I think I want to say most of my patients, but a lot of my patients with BPH and I guess for you to the same. If you do sleep studies, most of them probably will have sleep apnea as well. And it's just the, the body habitus of most people, uh, at least the ones that we treat in this area.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I don't know that Central Florida is necessarily more obese than the rest of the nation. No, I don't think, but but, but it's just the
0: reality of, of what, we, what we do.
1: Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I think that there probably is a high correlation between urologic issues and and obesity. And that the, the data proves that out as well. But... But I would say that, you know, again, it's kind of an interesting dynamic because uh, we're starting to see all these different things that are happening that, again, it's an inevitable hammer, right? You know, culturally, I don't think things necessarily change because you want them to. It's like a river that goes towards, uh, you know, some paths of least resistance in some ways. And when a new technology opens, that kind of leads to a different way the river runs. But certainly there are implications. Societal implications for those things.
0: And going back to the fertility part and, and, and you starting your full practice of andrology and fertility, in terms of coverage, the insurance, have you seen something better? Or, or this is this
1: still purely catch practice? I mean, that's a really, really smart segue because as things have changed, there has certainly been an identification among employers that hey, more and more people are asking for this, and the insurance companies too, that, hey, more and more people are kind of asking for fertility coverage. And traditionally, it would occupy a gray area because, you know, an insurance company traditionally would approach the general population. They would say, hey, look, you know, we're we're covering you. But, you know, having a kid is a luxury. Now, that's, of course, highly debatable because for a lot of people, they rightfully feel that having a kid is part and parcel of their general health, that they feel that this is intimately tied to their well-being. And it is, you know, for a lot of men, a lot of men, a lot of women. And certainly societally, there's less pressure in our Western society to reproduce, but certainly there's still quite a bit of pressure. And um, in other societies, still very high. So it it is intimately tied to well-being and uh, mental well-being. But again, traditionally, insurance companies haven't necessarily seen it that way. But there's been a shift. There's been a very big shift, partly because of an enticement. Again, 70% of people get their insurance through their employer. And one of the enticements now to keep people, again, in the labor market we have, that becomes important, where one of the, you know, advantages of certain organizations is they offer fertility coverage. And some people really look at that as a big, big plus to stay within a company because they offer it. and. One of the biggest examples of this is Disney. Disney, you know, offers, depending on what kind of insurance they have and what level they are within Disney, they they have this as a, as a benefit, and that becomes really interesting because it definitely influences the whole fertility space in general. The fertility space was built on not being an insurance mandated sort of thing, but certainly where I trained, there are certain states that uh, mandate insurance coverage. And it becomes a different dynamic. So you're saying that that the government mandates? The state government. The state government mandates
0: that insurance they need to cover, at least to some extent.
1: In some states, right. So, for example, Illinois is an example of that. You know, that's why it becomes a good place to train for fertility because it's high reps, right? You You end up kind of doing more because they mandate it. And it becomes an interesting microcosm to where things may be headed from the private side. A lot of um, insurers now are actually, they're offering uh, subsections of their insurance. For example, uh, United and Optum, they have a infertility benefit under their Optum plan. And uh, Cigna is doing the same. Aetna, all the big insurers are starting to have a fertility plan, essentially. But the, the interesting thing is that there is a lot of third parties that are now becoming bigger and bigger players as a result of this. So the biggest example are things like Kind Body and Progeny, which is more on the female side, but they have started to, Progeny being the first and the one that offered the most as an adjunct uh, insurance for females to cover fertility. And now they're starting to have a male component to that. One of the RE centers that I talked to, and they're all really smart people, one of the practice managers at one of the REs that I talked to, and they were saying that, you know, before there used to be a, a small percentage, maybe 20, 30 percent that insurance would cover. And now it's getting closer to like 60 percent in a couple of years. I mean, it, it's it's been a really big change. And I think that as, again, you get these societal pressures where infertility is starting to go up, the rate of it going up, I, I think that it becomes more and more of an enticement for employers to keep their employees happy and offer that. And that will probably drive more coverage and more treatment.
0: So you're saying from what I heard, some of these insurance are either covered and then they're also supplemental insurance that you can add to your regular
1: insurance if your insurance doesn't pay for it. That's right, both exists. Kind of the same way you get a primary and secondary insurance. So that also, that awareness has started to become, you know, more and more too.
0: And will they cover the full extent of of, of your practice or some of it, higher co-pays? What have you seen?
1: So it's interesting. So getting back to that example, um, on the female side, so Progeny, they'll have a, a product where, you know, they'll say to the patient, look, you can get two IUI cycles or one IVF cycle. And of course, most patients will say, well, I'll opt for the IVF, right? I mean, it's just a percentages game. And so again, that kind of becomes a a big driver of something that traditionally was kind of a last option, but now it becomes, well, you know, insurance is going to pay for it. So now it's a first option. And on the male side, it ends up being kind of a similar sort of thing, or it will be a similar sort of thing where... They'll give a a set amount to kind of say, hey, you can do this sort of testing, or you can just go straight to sperm extraction, or there'll be a similar sort of dynamic. For the vasectomy patients, it'll be interesting because there may very well be a dynamic where they say, okay, well, you can do a vasectomy reversal, or you can do sperm extraction with IVF, and, you know, both sides are covered. And then that becomes a different dynamic, right? Because um, there's a lot of different things that come into play there. In terms of risks.
0: So it will be one or the other because you, you usually do the vast reversal first and then if there's nothing then you will do the, the retrieval right?
1: Yeah I mean depending right I mean if uh, you know you have a vasectomy that's 20 years old and the wife isn't coming near 40 then you may want to say look you know maybe you're better off doing a testicular sperm extraction IVF and then, you know, on the flip side, if both are young and the vasectomy has been relatively soon, then you might want to say, hey, look, you guys are probably better off with a vasectomy reversal. Yeah, there they're kind of different things that play into each one of those. But generally speaking, yeah, most people would prefer to have a vasectomy reversal and the old-fashioned way versus, you know, sperm extraction and IVF. It is interesting, though, because some of those vasectomy guys that had it, you know, 10, 15 years ago, you kind of do surrogate markers. And I usually do that. I almost always do that, especially on exam if their testes show, you know, kind of borderline volume. And you'll be surprised how many of those people, you know, of course, were perfectly fertile before they had the vasectomy. And all of a sudden, it's not so assured, even with the vasectomy reversal. So that also plays a role in terms of what's going on with the patient. Interesting. And Samit, in terms of challenges of infertility,
0: in terms of diagnosis problems, you mentioned labs, what is normal, what's what's expected, all that. What are the challenges that we're currently having in in that field?
1: I think... the biggest challenge that we have is still awareness. I mean, I think that a lot of times the fact that we can do anything, the fact that the male side can do something it is something that ends up being partly societal and partly physician driven. So part of this ends up being, well, you know, sometimes on the female side, they kind of say, well, you know, what difference does it make? So long as you have a couple of sperm, we'll do IVF. You know, and that's probably not great, certainly from the male side, because a lot of them want to know what's going on. And more importantly, if they can avoid IVF. But even if they can't, um, the IVF outcomes, they become better. You know, they become better with optimizing the male side. So it, it becomes a win-win in a lot of ways where traditionally that may not be the way that the, the reproductive endocrinologist would look at it. The other part of that is that because so much of healthcare in general is still driven from the female side, certainly within families, but also within people that don't have a family. The female tends to get evaluated and do a full evaluation and there ends up being something or nothing. And then they do a semen analysis and it's like, hey, there's an issue on the guy side too. And again, the issue on the guy side, that happens 50% of the time in the sense that 20% it's exclusively due to the guy and another 30% it's due at least in part to the guy. So again, you know, 50%, it's at least in part or solely due to the guy's side. But the male's evaluation is sometimes limited, again, you know, sometimes because of even societal roles they get played.
0: No, and that's exactly right. So sometimes I see patients in the office that they say, well, my wife has been under treatment for the past three years and they have never told the, the male, hey, it could be your fault or, or you need to check yourself. So that, uh, after three years of treatment, everything, then... Usually the GYN since hey, you need to look for a urologist and make sure that everything's fine. But it took three years.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah. It happens all the time. And yeah, sometimes, of course, it it, it ends up being just, I'll have a patient that'll come in and you know being dragged by their ear, by the wife, or, or even worse, just told to be there. Yeah. And, <laughs> they, and they're like, oh, I don't know why I'm here. My wife told me I'm supposed to be here. And I, I may have gotten a semen analysis. I don't know. It's like, oh, you don't remember, kind of doing a semen analysis, it's kind of an unforgettable sort of thing. And I, so I think, again, some of it is kind of societal, but regardless, you know, getting to your earlier point, it, it really is something that's on the rise. So so
0: in terms of things that can be helpful in the infertility world, I saw you did a talk a couple of months ago uh, about artificial intelligence in infertility. So let's talk about that.
1: Give us a little bit of background uh, in terms of AI and infertility. Yeah, so this is, I mean, of course, it's a a fascinating subject and uh, one that has a lot of zeitgeist right now, right? I mean, everything's AI, and I think ChatGPT was probably the thing that brought that awareness to the general public that, oh, my gosh, we're actually starting to live in the age of AI. And it's a race. I mean, it's a race that's very, very similar to that race that we saw with the internet when it first came. You know, it's almost like a wild, wild west, just limited by your imagination. I think the first shot across the bow for us as surgeons, I think for me was with the STAR program. Now, for those of you that aren't familiar, the STAR program stands for Surgical Tissue Automated Robot. Our friends uh, at uh, Hopkins are the ones that developed this. And this was back in 2022 where they put out their first video for this. And since then, it's just been an amazing journey where the actual robot itself did a full pig anastomosis with zero human intervention, none. Not You know, they put the ports in and the robot did the whole thing, the excision and the anastomosis. And the crazy thing is that Initially, of course, it was slow, but it learned, and it learned at a rate that you and I—I—I I, I, I know, Jose, we, we you, are <laughs> yeah. you, are, you are an amazing surgeon. You are—you are an amazing surgeon, and <laughs> but I—I I, I would say that either you or I would love to have that sort of learning curve the, that Star demonstrated, and it, it, it's amazing. It is absolutely insane just how much ground was covered with the surgical robot, where a true surgical robot, where it isn't just an extension of us, but a truly AI-driven platform that learned as it started doing the surgery and doing more and more of those surgeries. Which, you know, when I look at that, I kind of look at guys like you and I, and, you know, <laughs> I kind of think, I-, I thought we had two more generations of us before we were kind of labeled dinosaurs, but maybe not. I think if we have 10 years, is good enough. <laughs> <It's true laughs> for 10 years, yeah, yeah, maybe, and I think that it's interesting when you start looking at that and looking at just how far in a short, short amount of time AI has kind of come. And you know, we we talk about that certainly from kind of a global scale and certainly within uh, different tech spaces, but. Specifically, I I mean, specifically in the medicine space and more specifically in the urology space and even more specifically in the male infertility space. So each one of those, it's been an explosion of applications. And again, it's just limited by your imagination. So for us in male fertility, what it comes down to is diagnostics, therapeutics, and specifically within those categories, AI has made tremendous, tremendous, tremendous difference in terms of what we're able to do. So within the diagnostic category, neural networks have been around forever for about 30 years or more in a practical application. But more specifically, the AI driven networks have allowed us to take a huge set of genes that, you know, for us really become very difficult, right? You know, when human genome came out, that's like a computer dropping out of the sky where we don't know what the OS is and we don't know even what the keyboard is. But, you know, now in the age of AI, we're, we are getting much, much better to actually having commercially available tests beyond just the Y chromosome and microdeletion and karyotype testing that we had before. Uh, now we have a whole spectrum of tests that we can use for patients with azospermia. Um, But even kind of oligospermia, now we're starting to develop those tests. And it's not gonna be long before those tests are actually commercially viable. Even now, there are places you can send these uh, samples to where you can actually get an array of tests done. And the only reason that's possible is because of an AI algorithm that allows for us to identify which are candidate genes. Um, so certainly within the diagnostic category, that that becomes a useful tool. And it, it will give you more information instead of
0: going back and forth, trying different pills, trying to boost the sperm count, for example, you will go straight into a diagnosis. Hey, I mean, there, there's nothing we can do. We can
1: go straight into a retrieval, whatever. That, that, that's what we're talking about. Right. I mean, I think that in general, the dual ideas of AI and targeted therapy are hand in hand. And so I, I think that certainly when you talk about it in the oncologic space right now, you have these big data sets that are owned by multiple entities. So um, the pharmaceutical companies, but also the, the Moffitts and the MD Anderson's and the Sloan Kettering's of the world, where you'll start to have these big data sets where they're able to kind of differentiate, you know, what kind of treatment would work the best, whether it is a specific molecular marker that has targeted therapy or a combination of medications or a combination of targeted therapy. And chemotherapy that work to the point where something like with bladder cancer, we're starting to talk about not doing cystectomies anymore, right? Which is uh, crazy, but um, you know, it would be insane. And uh, a similar sort of thing is happening within the fertility space, within the male fertility space, where we're starting to get a better idea of you know where we're actually going in terms of being able to. Identify what the true problem here is, what the true risk factor is, and like you said, versus having kind of a spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. Um, really being able to target what therapy is going to work the best, if any, is going to work the best. And you know, the flip side is also well, if nothing's going to work, you know, we don't subject the patient to anything.
0: And right now, I mean, are, are you using it in your practice, or or is still not there? Uh, this is it too expensive? Where is it at right now?
1: Yeah. So right now it probably is too expensive. Just the other day, I was talking to one of the uh, PhDs that runs, you may have heard of Source. They're a testing uh, outfit for semen analyses. They do some secondary testing, things like DFIs and um, the DNA fragmentation indices and different kinds of secondary testing on on sperm, not just DFI. So OSA, which is an oxidative species assay and uh, high DNA stainability, different things that can kind of give you different ideas of what may be going on with sperm and why fertility may not be happening on the male side. And uh, even within their subset, they readily identify that, look, you know, that stuff exists and we follow it and we want that to be a part of our testing. Not A lot of people don't realize that they're part of Quest. So they're 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 in it to win it. I mean, they, they're, they're really kind of uh, a part of a, a gorilla. I mean, it's not a stretch to say the premier testing outfit in the U.S., at least probably worldwide. And, you know, they readily admit that, look, you know, that that stuff right now, it's just the numbers just don't make sense. You know, they they, they follow the literature and they, they see all the candidate genes coming out and they understand that AI is going to be a big part of being able to bend this stuff. But uh, right now it's just too expensive. Now, having said that, you know, you may know that Illumina's patent, I think that ran out recently or it's just about to you know, so the ability to do, uh, you know, full genome sequencing, next-gen sequencing now is, you know, before it was, you know, something that, you know, it would be the price of a Rolls-Royce or something. But now it's, you know, as commonplace as getting dinner. It's something that's incredibly cheap now. And I think that data, as that becomes commercially available and just frankly cheaper to perform, that price tag is going to come way down. So it's definitely on their radars. And I think that it's not going to be long before we're really going to have some commercially viable tests. So you mentioned the target
0: therapy. Also, you mentioned the robot doing the own uh, fast reversal or uh, even the retrievals. Is there something else that AI will help uh, in this population?
1: Yeah. So um, one of the things that's even available now is, again, the democratization of a lot of these platforms. So, um, for example, Google. One of the things that Google has is this uh, way of evaluating pictures. And it, it's a pretty robust neural network that they use that's available. I mean, you can do it. You can actually go online and use AutoML and that's freely available. And so there have been a lot of researchers that have taken full advantage of this And actually kind of put together their images and been able to run algorithms to be able to identify real time uh, different parameters that may be useful for us to to actually identify sperm. So one of the challenges of what we do is that we find needles in haystacks, right? Um, When we go and we do a micro test, you know, we can be there for hours just looking for the right tubule to actually get that may actually have sperm. And that's a very time-consuming process, not just for us, but more so for the embryologist. The poor embryologist is sitting there kind of looking at this stuff and trying to, you know, get sperm and and that can take five, six hours. And so now those images can actually be loaded onto AutoML and they can actually be sifted through and you can actually be able to, you know, real-time kind of identify uh, areas that are more likely. And so instead of, having the poor embryologist kind of sit there for hours, you know, now their time is much, much, much smaller. And eventually our time will be too, where they can actually identify areas that are you know, more likely to get sperm and actually, you know, kind of zero in on those areas. And, you know, before that was kind of more a histologic thing that you had to do back and forth. And now with, you know, some of these algorithms based on real-time images, you're, you're going to be able to do that very soon where you're able to do that real time.
0: And that definitely will, I mean, you mentioned the, the decrease in time, but definitely more success rate, I, I guess.
1: Yeah, both those things. That's right. The success rates sometimes are a little harder to come by because a lot of it also depends on how you're doing it. But that, again, kind of goes back to what we were saying before. So a lot of times we still do uh, this in the sense that we kind of freeze and thaw sperm. And the problem with that is that you lose sperm when you freeze and thaw it. And there have been different ways to kind of prevent that, essentially kind of little containers for sperm. You can think of them as kind of little containers that you put sperm in so you know where to find them when you kind of thought. it. Um, but even then, there's been, for multiple reasons, a lot of resistance from adopting that on a wide scale, cost being a significant part of that. But now, as the cost of vitrifying eggs has gone down, now you can do it from the other side, at least much more on a scalable model where the model becomes much more, well, you know, you're going to need to do IVF. You don't know whether or not he has sperm or not. But um, if you're kind of okay with kind of maximizing chances, then you can actually vitrify eggs. You can freeze eggs as part of the IVF process. And then if you find sperm, uh, cycle is a fresh cycle in that sense, where once you find sperm, you put it into an egg and you start creating embryos. And That way you don't have to deal with that freeze thaw as much. And that, that's starting to become more and more popular as an option for men that have azospermia. And it'll become even more popular once we kind of are able to bend these people in terms of what our chances of actually getting sperm are. So
0: definitely you have mentioned the AI at different stages of the diagnosis and treatment of infertility. I'm going to be redundant, but definitely you have mentioned that you're going to be more successful in the diagnosis and knowing what to do. But but essentially, I mean, you have that patient goes there, you, you start using the AI for diagnostic purpose. You know, let's say, for example, that patient is going to go straight into a sperm retrieval. And then you're going to use also artificial intelligence in the OR to help you decide what's the best area
1: to get the retrieval from, right? Yeah, it's going to be an IoT sort of thing. You know, when we talk about the internet of things, we talk about getting things online right i mean everything you can imagine you know having a smart hookup i think that the way that a lot of surgery in general but certainly within the fertility space is going is that it'll be kind of an aiot and you know at every stage there there'll be this influence in terms of not only you know from the beginning from a diagnosis standpoint and then the actual procedure itself, getting to the procedure, you know, what, what the right way to optimize to get to the procedure, the procedure itself, like we talked about in terms of getting sperm. And then once you get the sperm, what to do with it, you know, how to get the sperm and then how to properly do it. And then even after that phase, still kind of optimizing afterwards in terms of when sperm meets egg, kind of the right way to do that, uh, which one of these uh, embryos are going to be viable versus not. So, of course, you know, once sperm meets egg, that's not the end of it, right? They got to they gotta actually build. Uh,
0: I was going to ask you about that part. So, in terms of the embryologists choosing the perfect sperm, how do they do that? I mean, it's based just purely on what they know, just on previous images, because definitely the AI has the potential to know more than an embryologist or, or to to see more through a microscope compared to, to the embryologist, but uh, what are they
1: looking for? Yeah, if you ask the embryologist they would tell you otherwise. But, oh, you're right. <laughs> but But yeah, and and so it kind of depends on the situation, right? I mean, in something like a microtesi, they'll, they'll just be happy if they get sperm. Uh, you know, anything that looks like sperm. It doesn't even have to be a full mature sperm, you know, kind of the spermatid that isn't kind of fully mature, they'll they'll take it. They'll they, you know, they'll use it. Um and those have been useful. But all things being equal, if they kind of have a choice, they basically choose based on morphology and motility. So they, they want sperm that are viable and kind of wiggling around and look healthy and act healthy. Um, and that would be their ideal sperm to use. Again, sometimes they don't get a choice. And, you know, we, we've done these studies. We've looked at necrospermia, so sperm that have viability of zero. So the way you test that is actually you put sperm in a solution that if the sperm is alive, it actively pumps out the solution. So, you know, kind of like a sea of purple that has a little, you know, clear dot in there that has a tail, That that's a live sperm, right? So we've had sperm, you know, that again, viability zero. Um, and we've used those for IVF and been successful, actually had kids from there. And when sperm gets into egg, you, you really kind of have to have a process of essentially imitating the acrosome reaction where you know, the head of the acrosome, you know meets the egg and kind of elongates and injects the DNA in there. You know, if you put a live sperm in an egg, it's just a sperm that swims around in an egg. you know it doesn't it doesn't fertilize. So you still have to kind of imitate that in some ways, kind of lice or destroy the the sperm. It, you know, that's kind of a harsh way of putting it, but you know, it kind of serves the purpose of explaining what happens. Again, kind of to your point, AI will help that process. It'll help the process of choosing the right sperm and the right parameters to be able to do it. But the more exciting thing in terms of AI is what happens actually even after fertilization, right? So, you know, not all eggs fertilize, not all eggs are meant to fertilize. And which eggs you choose also will be, again, there's already a huge push towards incorporating AI into that process because you can choose, you know, eggs based on kind of what they look like, what their morphology is, and they grade the eggs that way. Um, but certainly, when you get to the embryo stage, there's a whole lot of that where you kind of grow the embryo to a certain point, and then you take in PGS, so pre-screening genetic screening. You take a cell from the egg at the blastocyst stage, you freeze the embryos, and then you run a genetic analysis on that to see you know which one of these embryos are the most viable. The problem with that has been traditionally, you're not sure exactly what you're getting really is indicative of what the embryo quality is. Because what will happen is that the embryos have a certain ability to kind of push off the bad cells to the periphery. And a lot of times when you kind of take that sample, when you take that biopsy, you don't want it on the inner cell mass, right? You kind of don't want to mess with the developing embryo. So, you take it from the outside, and that can actually be you know a cell that was going to be pushed off anyway, so it may show genetic issues that aren't really true of what the embryo is going to be, and you will discard the entire embryo, but just based on that one right, exactly. so you know there's still kind of an idea of you well, uh, you kind of want to use morphology and you kind of want to use p g s to avoid big sort of issues with aneuploidy, so this is again another active area of AI where to kind of be able to identify the right kind of cell to be able to, you know, get an accurate reading and to figure out the right way to do this to begin with. And again, you start to kind of take a step back and look at how AI is kind of in each one of these stages, you know, how each one of these things will be optimized a little bit better and a little bit better. And it's not like science fiction in the future. I mean, these these are things that are already starting to be incorporated. And, you know, really within a couple of years, they're you know, may even be standard of care well within a couple of years. So it becomes a, a very different world when you start looking at it through those lenses and seeing how we have a helping hand in each one of these phases. And that that's not without hubris. I mean, it's amazing that we have embryologists and we have reproductive endocrinologists and we have people along these states that know so much about each one of these things. But eventually, you know, that helping hand is going to be really useful for us to figure out how to do each. one. And then at the very end of this, too, to figure out the right time to implant um, and the right circumstances to implant, that, too, will also be, you know, kind of AI driven. So, you know, you'll, you'll see each one of these things, which before was kind of you had to get each one of these things right. You still have to get each one of these right. But there's going to be a helping hand with each one of these.
0: And I guess that that's the key point that you're making, the, the helping hand, as as long as it stays a helping hand and it's not <laughs> right. completely Dr. Patel, just substituting Dr. Patel, I think which would be good.
1: And so that's kind of one of those things, right? The 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 saying that I'm sure most people that listen to this are are familiar with and certainly you're probably familiar with, and the, the Chinese character for disaster is the same as opportunity, right? Um it just kind of depends on how you look at this. Certainly, there's an opportunity to make healthcare better for people and really to drive a lot of things to optimization, which is, you know, all of us are for. We don't want to be replaced, certainly. But it also becomes getting back to this idea of the democratization of this. These are things now that are within our grasp as physicians where we can drive this. Where, you know, before you needed a tech guy to kind of do a lot of this stuff. Now, a lot of the tech is also AI where you can actually say, you know, I want a program that does this. And, you know, chat GPT or BART or, you know, something like that will actually kind of spit out a program for you in like a Python language where you can put in the parameters and do this. So that ends up being just incredibly powerful, right? And in some ways, again, mirrors this same sort of time when the internet started coming and you were just limited by what you could think of to actually kind of apply this stuff. Same sort of thing in medicine. We occupy a very unique space where we're the experts in what we do. And, you know, we know where the applications of this stuff are. You just kind of need the right kind of partners to be able to kind of get from A to B because we're very busy. But it's well within the realm of possibility for all of us.
0: No, that definitely me, I do a lot of BPH and, and, and stone, just like, like you did when you were with us. Looking forward to just having, like you said, a helping hand. Hey, this is going to be the best treatment for you for, for, to break the stone. Even if it's a S-wall, your droscopy, PCN, or whatever, but definitely that extra helping hand telling you, hey, do this. I mean, he's going to be better or be BPH instead of EuroLib deciding, see, we, right now we do something and we'll hope for the best, but definitely something extra telling you, hey, go with this. The patient's going to be better just based on the, on the consistency of prostate, whatever, of cells or whatever the AI will be looking for.
1: And the flip side of that too, also keeping us out of trouble. You know, sometimes there are things that you just can't anticipate. It's very, very difficult to anticipate. And, The hope is really that AI kind of sees some of that stuff beforehand and kind of alerts us to it so that we're not stuck holding the ball for some, you know, obscure thing that really would, we would never think of.
0: Exactly. Just, I mean, for example, I mean, just sometimes we do stuff, we know that it's not going to be bad for the patient, but is it going to be the best for the patient? And sometimes something more basic, more aggressive, hey, it might be good for for the problem, but is it going to be good for the patient? And definitely, AI can help us making the best decision, taking all those things into consideration.
1: Yeah. I think that it, it is going to be an exciting time for people, for, for physicians. You know, on the other hand, I don't think that it's ever going to be the case where physicians are kind of X'd out. I, I, I think there's always going to be a need for, you know, a humanistic touch, no matter how well-developed AI becomes. I would say, though, that it probably also will help us. I mean, the one thing, of course, within our circles in Advent Health, they talk a lot about the, the great uh, horse manure crisis of the, the 1900s. I don't know if you've heard this story or not. No, I, I haven't, I haven't. Uh, um, so this is a good one, too, where right after the Industrial Revolution, where there was more and more people living in urban centers, Uh, The problem is people had to get around, right? And the way people got around was with horses back then, for the most part. And that was a real problem because horses poop and it smells and it becomes a a sanitary issue and a hygiene issue. And so the streets would smell and, you know, it would just be, you know, kind of horrible because every time you walked out, there'd be this horse manure everywhere. And of course that, you know, there were ways to deal with this and kind of take it out to the countryside to use as fertilizer. But still, it was, you know, more and more people, more horses, more of a problem. And there were people at the time saying, look, this is the biggest crisis of the, you know, that we're going to have is we're going to be like knee deep in horse manure everywhere we go. And of course, what happened was that the car came and, you know, that of course became a non-issue. And so I think it's going to be a similar sort of thing where, you know, this Deus Ex Machina event happens and AI probably represents that Deus Ex Machina event where, you know, there's this technology and now it's really started to develop to the point where, you know, we can really do a lot of things which we thought impossible before. And that helps us kind of operate at top of license. So it'll help us be able to treat more people. Because we have a shortage, right? We have a shortage of urologists. And now, if we can be more efficient and do more and leverage technology, well, it kind of solves that. I think that it's exciting from that sense. I think that that's really going to be something that helps a lot of people. And I I think that, you know, from our standpoint, as uh, certainly as surgeons, that, you know, really becomes useful to, you know, deal with the wave that's coming.
0: I think that's all great and very good information. Samit, anything else you wanted to add?
1: I think that the only thing I, w- I would say is just kind of a repeat of what what I did before, where this kind of represents an incredible opportunity for a lot of physicians and um, certainly urologists, but I think any kind of physician. I think it becomes a really, really incredible juncture in medicine where our little time we have is usually spent on family and appropriately so, and this shouldn't take away from that, but you know, spending a little bit of time to kind of learn about these things, I think would, would really kind of do a lot to regain your interest in medicine and really kind of, you know, maybe take you in a direction that you wouldn't think about before taking, but, you know, it can become really rewarding for the physician that does. It is, it is. So we'll see, we'll see what the
0: future holds for us, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Hopefully nothing bad. No, no, hopefully.
0: So Samit, again, thanks for being back table. Until next
1: time. And thank you very much for having me, Jose, and uh, thank you very much for this podcast. I hope people find it uh, informative and useful.
0: Thank you so much for listening. With support from
1: Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. With support from Devante Delbrun. Social media and PR by G. Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy lui
0: Thanks again for listening and see you next week.